again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome back as we continue in season number three of Scope of Practice. My name is Jeff Kwame, your host, and I'm the executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. The first written recording of the term first responder goes back to about 1973 when the legislature of the state of Massachusetts proposed a bill covering ambulance regulations but it really became a part of the public's lexicon after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. The term was formally defined federally in the Homeland Security Act of 2002. And since that time, many have spoken of first responders as a single demographic with shared motivations, goals, and characteristics. We support our first responders is a, is a popular phrase, but do we really? In January of this year, New Britain, Connecticut firefighter Matt Disney died from an apparent overdose. His toxicology results have not been released, but there is evidence that does exist in a series of personal communications that it was most likely an overdose. It was also discovered that several members of that same department were involved in what the media called a drug culture within the department. Reading some of the public comments related to the story on message boards and social media, public opinion was clear. Bad actors have corrupted that department. It was also called a black eye for the city by the mayor. However, I prefer the words of Chief Raul Ortiz, who said, we have some healing to do. The chief remembered something that so many forgot, that each first responder is an individual who, like the rest of us, carries their own burden of life experience, personality, and psyche into the job. We applaud when one shows what we consider to be an appropriate emotional response to a situation because that's just what first responders do. And as evidenced by the tragedy of firefighter Disney, we cast aspersions on he and his colleagues, openly stigmatizing them for all things related to substance use and substance use disorders. Apparently, we only support first responders who act in the stereotypical view that we hold so dearly. I bring you back to my statement from just seconds ago. First responders are people people faced with a nearly impossible task of surviving the physical toll and emotional roller coaster of their profession. Perhaps Chief Ortiz's words have meaning for us as well. We have to heal. In 2009, Jeffrey Dill organized counseling services for firefighters. CF, CSFF was established based on the tragic events that surrounded Hurricane Katrina. When speaking with firefighters who returned after serving the community of New Orleans, he heard the pleas of these firefighters who had a difficult time talking with counselors who did not have any firefighting experience. They became frustrated and never did seek the help they needed. It was CSFF's mission to offer behavioral health workshops to support fighters, firefighters, train senior officers, and educate clinicians on the benefits of understanding the life and emotion of firefighters. In 2011, the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance was established to directly educate firefighters and emergency medical services personnel and their families about behavioral health, uh, behavioral health issues such as depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety and substance use disorders, as well as firefighter suicide. Through businesses, community support and sponsorship is their hope that the workshops and services will be offered at no charge to those in need. Jeff holds a master's degree and is a licensed counselor. He's a retired captain from the Palatine Rural Fire Protection District in Inverness, Illinois, and is a member of the American Counseling Association, National Board of Certified Counselors, International Associations of Fire Chiefs, and is an alumni member of the International Association of Firefighters. In July of 2021, I guess you're going on your first year anniversary, Jeff accepted the position of Behavioral Health Administrator with the Las Vegas Fire and Rescue. 
Thanks for joining us, Jeff. And you are the second Jeff in a in a row that we've interviewed. So it's been for, for two shows. It's been four Jeffs. Well, it's uh, it's my pleasure, sir. And uh, so you must be interviewing a lot of people born in the early '60s because that was the popular name. <laughs> the two, both, uh, all three of us so far, you and I, and, and the other individual man named Jeffrey Johnston, uh, we're all about the you know that same age. I was '66. Yep, I was, I was 61, and I think I, you're talking about Chief Jeff uh, Johnston? Yep. Is that a, yep, I, I know Jeff. So, Jeff Johnston, uh, he's a good guy. It, yes, he is. A uh, very big advocate for uh, a lot of positive things in the fire service, yep. including behavioral health. So let's jump into it. Uh, when you and I spoke initially, we talked about really the distinct cultural aspects that are unique to firefighters, and you coined a term uh, that has relation to it. Can you talk about some of the cultural similarities in the group and how about your term cultural brainwashing? Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, the first time I ever spoke uh, presenting workshops in December of 2011 for the Philadelphia Fire Department, I walked in and said, we'll be talking about PTSD and suicide awareness prevention. And, and you thought I had leprosy. And it's like, wow, it's because we never talked about behavioral health in the fire service. And I had 26 years on the job outside of uh, Chicago in the Northwest suburbs. And, and like I said, it was just something that we never discussed. And so, you know, going through uh, the things that I've done, especially validating the data of firefighter suicides, I came up with that phrase, cultural brainwashing. And what that means is that we put this uniform on, we are expected to act in a certain manner. And that is brave, courageous, give help, don't ask for help. I handle all things on my own. I do not want to be the weak link of the company. And who expects that? Well, our brothers and sisters we work with, the communities we serve, the traditions of the fire service have determined that for 250 plus years. And when you're challenged in your personal professional life and you're expected to act in this way, it becomes very difficult, especially based on the things that we see and do both in our personal and professional life that many of us unfortunately struggle, whether it's depression, addiction, sleep deprivation, relationship issues, PTS, it becomes very difficult to handle those things on our own. And that's that term cultural brainwashing. And society, Jeff, is, is actually brainwashed. Uh, we have seven different workshops. And one of the workshops uh, that I talk about is this thing called, um, I ask the counselors and chaplains or family members that when you hear the term cultural brainwashing, or excuse me, when you hear the term firefighter, what words come to your mind? And it's the same things, brave, strong, courageous, give help. In 12 years, I've never heard anyone say, well, you know, they drink like fish and they got anger issues and relationships really, really difficult and uh, sleep. Oh man, they don't sleep too well. It's because society. So then when you see the tragic events that happened, uh, like up in, in uh, the fire department that you had mentioned, it's, they're shocked by it. And yet we have to realize there are limits to what we can see and what we can perform. And so we turn to some of the darker things to help us get by, to keep that cultural image alive. It, it's 
interesting to me because as a younger man in my 30s, <laughs> I played flag football in a men's league in Hartford and several members of guys on my team were members of the Hartford Fire Department. And I mm -hmm. saw the anger. They took it out on the field and I oh, saw yeah, the drinking at the Phoenix Society. <laughs> <laughs> right. A so, absolutely. but it was just normal to me. It was just normal. I never thought of them as I didn't see them as firefighters because that's not the the where I knew them. I knew them as guys on my football team that we hung around right. and did other things. We didn't really even talk about what we did. It was it was a camaraderie kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But there was a absolutely. lot of drinking for all of us. And it it was it was it's an accepted uh, you know when we look at addictions and what we turn to. Alcohol is the number one known addiction in all our data. And I've traveled almost a million miles across the U.S. and Canada the last 10 years speaking and presenting. And it is the number one addiction. And why not? It's the easiest access. So when I'm struggling with stress and anxiety or depression or PTS, relationship issues, I'll just, I'll just drive down to the liquor store and pick up a six-pack or whatever you know I fancy. And, hey, you know, I didn't sleep so bad. The stress wasn't so bad, the relationship issues. Now I'm on shift for the day or I'm volunteering for the night. I, I can't touch the stuff. But, hey, you know, I'm, I'm off in a couple of days. I'll just go down to the liquor store and, and boom, we're hooked. We're not bad people. It's just that we were always told in our tradition, our culture, handle things on your own. And alcohol became our easiest access. I can imagine the fear of being viewed as the weak link on a on what's considered and what is a very strong team can be frightening for a firefighter. It's uh, it can be petrifying because that lack of trust. When we go on those calls, we're trusting each other to back us up that we all come home. And if people think, "Oh man, we Jeff uh, Jeff's you know he's struggling over there." He's, and you start thinking, well, man, am I the weak link? They won't trust me. I won't be part of that team. It, it's, it can be devastating. It, it truly can be because it's, it's very similar to a military, a paramilitary system, the fire service. Mm -hmm. We lean on each other. We're covering your six. And if there's a lack of trust that someone might not be there because they might back out or fear or weakness, uh, that, like I said, that can be devastating. And, and, and we've seen it. I, I see it in our data of 1,758 fire and EMS suicides I have validated. Many have, many, many firefighters say, hey, you know what? I, I'm struggling. I need to go get help. And everyone stands up in the department and claps and cheers and says, great, good. You're, you're going to get help. Perfect. Great. They come back from after 30, 60 days and, and all of a sudden the crews, oh, wait, you're, you're coming back to our shift? Oh, that uh, can can we trust you? To, you know, are you healed and things? And so that sends in that that lack of self confidence in our abilities. That lack of self confidence. Did we do the right thing by admitting that we struggled and we went and got the help? And unfortunately, we've seen some that have taken their lives because of it. And I can imagine you get the within the the individuals on that shift. Hey, keep an eye on so and so. They just came back, which takes the focus away from working as a team and doing your job that it can have horrible effects in a larger picture as well. Well, and, and I'm not saying it happens everywhere because right. there are, there, there's some great departments that support their people. And, but you know, I, I would, we both would be naive if we didn't think it doesn't happen. And it does, because like I said, I have the data that shows this is why they completed suicide was this lack of reason, lack of support from their their fellow firefighters or their department officers. And so it becomes an issue. And that's why we try to educate 
that it's okay to stand up and get the help. Push what we say is push pride to the side and, and get the help and support. Walk that walk with a brother or sister. And it, it, it sounds like and this kind of goes into where my next question was. What we're talking about it is this goes right into stigma and even worse, discrimination. Um, and it's not formalized discrimination, but hey, if this person is, if I'm coming back, I'm I feel I'm gonna be discriminated against because I I'm not going to get the assignment or no one's going to trust me because I sought help. I mean, again, these things just seem that they could be paralyzing. Well, and it also could be a form of harassment and or ne neglect, you know, the, that, that treatment uh, that, you know what, I'm not being treated the same way uh, at, before when I said I needed to get help. And so, like I said, these are the issues that we try to tackle here at FBHA is, is those behavioral health issues. And, um, you know what? In our data, there's there's no discrimination. It doesn't matter if you're fire, EMS, or dispatcher. It doesn't matter if you're career volunteer. It doesn't matter if you're male, female, ages, ranks, city, suburban, rural. And, and so we try to get out there as much as we can and uh, to promote the message. And it's not my message. Like I said, I've traveled uh, every state except Hawaii. I have five provinces in Canada, almost a million miles. This is the message for my brothers and sisters mm -hmm. out there and, and their families. You know, we, we do a lot for families, survivors. Uh, and so we try to bring that message out. This is not stuff that I just pull off the Internet. This is real life scenario situations. So when you look at the, the differences or are there differences between career firefighters and those who may volunteer in their own time and, and that live in smaller communities. Uh, do you see uh, statistical differences in terms of uh, issues with mental illness, substance use disorder, suicide? No, you know, and it's a great question because uh, we track career volunteer, wildland and military. I speak at a lot of Air Force bases, uh, EMS, which is private ambulance service, as well as uh, dispatchers. But when you look at the career and the volunteer, I, me personally, I started as a volunteer before I went career. I always felt it was more challenging as a volunteer because they were people I knew that I worked on vehicle accidents, fatalities, full arrests, and accidents. So these were people I knew. But what makes it so difficult is that a lot of volunteers, and understand, Jeff, there's approximately 1.1 million firefighters in America. Mm -hmm. Almost 70% of them are volunteers. Wow. And that shocks people. They, they just don't understand that. But yet almost 70% of firefighters in America are volunteers. And so when you look at the challenges of being a volunteer, you have to do the training, you, you know, EMT, fire academy, paramedic classes, plus you're holding down a full-time job and, uh, you know, a lot have families and things. So you are truly spreading yourself thin. And when you're in the walk in the cornfields at two in the morning, looking for bodies after a vehicle accident and people were ejected and four hours later, you have to be at your job. There's not a lot of resources available for them. And so uh, we work very closely with the National Volunteer Fire Council. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just amazing uh, what we're trying to do. We have a national directory now of counselors, FBHA and the NBFC of counselors that work with first responders. And so we have, I have personally spoken to almost 500 and we have about th just over 300 that have uh, taken the course and taken the test. And, and this is important because we want our volunteers, we want our career firefighters to have counselors and chaplains 
available for them that understand our world. So they're culturally competent counselors. Mm-hmm. And we had talked a little bit before that it is a culture unto itself, like so many other careers or mm-hmm. lifestyles or things, that culture is not, it's a broad term that covers a lot of different areas. Right. It, it absolutely does. And, uh, you know, and like I said, there are, are there differences. Yes, I mean volunteers. They they do it for free. There are some. There are some paid on call. They might get like six bucks a call or something. And uh, you know they they give up time out of their their schedule. Whereas a career, which I spent you know twenty years in, is that it was a dedicated. You know, for us, we worked twenty four forty eights. So I, I knew every third day I, I was working on shift. I could look at ten years from now and see what day I, I would be working. Mm-hmm. Um, so similar when it comes to the trauma, maybe not the amount of calls that career has over volunteer, but understand there are some major organizations that are volunteers that are very, very busy because they cover many uh, districts within that state. So, but overall, same issues, depression, PTSD, uh, addictions, relationship issues. And when we talk about the data, you know, hopefully a little bit later, we'll, we'll talk about those issues and uh, what's the number one known reason for a fire and EMS killing themselves. One of the things you just mentioned that that I had no even thought of, and it, it, it's difficult for me to, to, to even think about is a volunteer, you're, in, you're serving the community where you live. Every time the call comes out, you're thinking, do I, you're listening to the address or you're listening, mm-hmm. oh, please don't let it be somebody I know. And if you have children, you worry about your children and your children's friends. And that's got to right. be in your head all the time. I, I can't even imagine the difficulty of that. Well, you know, I, and I'll recall my first uh, full arrest and, you know, and, and it's like, okay, well, we, we couldn't save her. So if you're a volunteer and you couldn't save this person that lived in your community now, as you're walking down the street and the family happens to, you know, walk by and look at you a little differently, maybe because the sun's in their eyes, does it become our, th- oh, wait, do they think I didn't help out their family enough or I let them, let them die? And so that kind of thought process gets in, involved as well. So it's, a, it's, a, it's challenging to be a volunteer fire EMS personnel. Yeah, I mean, it, it clearly sounds like that. I mean, like things I didn't even imagine. It's just starting to come forward from our conversation. Um, you know, there's an interesting prepos- uh, preposition about many clinicians clinicians with that wounded he- healer theory. You know, that they've experienced mm-hmm. 81% of folks that are clinicians have experienced some sort of mental health distress in their lives. Again, that's self-report. Report, it's not real scientific data. But the theory has been altered a, a bit to be more inclusive of other groups of people called wounded helpers. And here are the things that are that, that uh, Young had said uh, are qualities. Somebody who is a lifelong seeker. They're always seeking something. They have a strong sense of purpose. They like being called on in times of need. They've been helping people for years, many since childhood. They have the ability to view experiences, especially difficult experiences, as opportunities for learning and growth. And they have this uncanny ability to find calm in the chaos. That sounds like a lot of people who may work in the fire service. Well, you know, the, the tradition is, is what you mentioned uh, has a lot of uh, reflective background in, in the fire service. 
But uh, there's also a belief that the people who are in the fire service had a lot of trauma growing up. Mm -hmm. And so that they wanted to be that, that helper, that assistant to try to make a difference in life. And which leads to, you know, the, that moral injury aspect of, yeah. of what we started looking at. A, a few months ago, a couple of firefighters came up to me and said, Jeff, have you have heard of moral injury? And I said, well, you know, being a licensed counselor, I've heard of it. But, you know, it wasn't really paid attention to in, in our school and things. And why? Because it's not in the diagnostic statistics manual, moral injury, uh, where PTSD is, is more of a trauma-based Moral injury is more an emotional and the emotions that you go through and the belief behind moral injury. One is it's, it, it's, it's a military term, just like PTSD was mm-hmm. in 2010. You know, Jeff and all PTSD, that's a military. That doesn't happen in the first responder world. And we got it's that a shell lot. shock in World War One. Yeah, the name absolutely. Changed as we going along. Right. Absolutely. And and so, uh, you know, I, I started I talked to many experts in moral injury, the military experts on moral injury. And the, the belief is, is that we are all born as human beings to do good. We want to help others. And then you get into the fire and EMS world and you're trained to save lives. Well, over time, you start losing more and more people. You start seeing some horrific things and you start feeling a lot of emotions of failure to do good and, and guilt and shame, embarrassment. And another big one is betrayal. Betrayal is a big, either by management or self or others. And so where I believe, and we, we did a national survey, we just completed it uh, last month, and we're in the process now of putting together the white paper on this moral injury in the first responder world, where I believe it becomes just as important a role, if not bigger than PTSD, is that component of betrayal. When we look at the fire service, we know the rates are between 60 to 65 in divorce. Could it be because our adrenaline, we're always looking for excitement, relationships at time, maybe it doesn't give us that excitement. So we're going out looking for an emotional or physical affair. Or is it because of the cultural brainwashing of how we're not supposed to show emotions that we destroy our relationships with our loved ones, our spouses, our partners, or our children? And so where I think this really comes into play is that when I look at our data of 1,758 suicides of fire and EMS and dispatchers, the number one known reason, and when I say this, it's because out of the 1,758, I've personally spoken to about 1,720 chief officers or family members to validate the data. So I've heard a ton of stories on and on the reasons, the methods, and the stories behind them. The number one known reason after unknown is marital and family relationships. And so I start tying that in. And, and I asked these experts in the, in the military about their moral injury and all the studies that they've been doing. And they found that the moral injury played a bigger role in suicides than PTSD in their soldiers. And, and so... That's why I had to had to do this uh, survey and get this white paper to really understand it. And we have an expert, one of the experts on our committee, who's kind of breaking down the the data for us on mm-hmm. that because we could do the survey, but I wouldn't know what it would say. <laughs> so, so it's good to have that moral injury expert on it. I think the importance in that is is also on a grand scale that it adds to the knowledge base. It really right. uh, increases what we know. And which 
increases our ability to be helpful. If you well, talk about reason and you say that the the largest reason is really unknown, do you have a just a rough idea of what the percentage would be around uh, unknown and then uh, marital and family relationships or that's still being determined? Well, out of my data, I, I know the, the amounts of uh, how many are unknown, how many are, uh, and number one was marital family followed by depression. Number three is PTSD. Number four is medical or physical uh, issues that they're dealing with. And number five was addictions. And then there's, there's legal, there's financial, and then, of course, there's combinations. Maybe they saw a bad call. It turned to addictions, it ruined their relationship, and they ended up killing themselves. So we, we have those combinations. We have murder-suicide. 65 of our uh, 1758 are members of the fire EMS world that killed their spouses or family members and then themselves. So we have those issues that we track. And it's, like I said, it's, um, and we also only estimate, Jeff, about a 65% reporting. Okay. Will we ever get it 100%? Never. Yeah. If the federal true. government yeah, if the federal government starts to track, they will never get at 100. It's just because you don't know about the vehicle accidents. You don't know about the overdoses. Uh, I had a chief, I had a, re, we get a confidential, we get confidential reports and I contacted the chief and I said, uh, chief, I was just validating the report. Uh, you know, this firefighter, did he take his life? And, and this and that. And he says, well, he said, Jeff, we, we absolutely believe he took his life. He had been struggling. He, he talked to people that life wasn't good and this and that. And but the the police department ruled it accidental. And he said how it could be accidental when he shot himself in the temple. We have no idea. But until so you're never going to get the 100 percent. But it was it was important to understand moral injury for, like you said, the educational factor, but also to train counselors to not only look for PTSD, but look for moral injury. And, and how to treat that as well. And, and you'll see that in the white paper coming out. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I'm looking forward to, to seeing that. Um, as clinicians, non-first responders, but just as clinicians, you know, we often are able to understand the stressors to responding to calls in situations that are counted. We can never experience it, but we have an idea. We see how it affects somebody else. But it's, it's much less common for clinicians to, uh, or, or anybody to have an understanding of the stress of the routine day, the right. sitting and waiting that you know you're going, your involvement means something bad happens. I'm sure that there's some sort of uh, stress and weight on the shoulders that, that sits on individuals on those routine days, so to speak. No, and, and you're correct. I mean, for volunteer departments, wondering what that next call will be. Will it be the house fire? Will it be someone I know? Career, that, that stress and stress and anxiety. Uh, we did a, a national survey in 2019, and on, in a five-day period, we got 942 responses, first responder responses in five days. 71% of those members said that they deal with stress and anxiety on a daily basis. That's, that's a high number that to have that much stress and anxiety. And so you know that they're bringing it home. So now that stress and anxiety is expanded to their partners, their children, their loved ones. And so it's, it's a career that so many people dream about when they were young. And now you get into it and 
It's like, wow, they didn't tell us about this. They didn't tell us about the PTSD, the images we'll carry in our minds for the rest of our lives. And so it, it can be very challenging. The good news is in 2010, like I said, there was no organizations that you could really search and find. Now there's just, there's just, there's just way, there's a plethora of them, right? If you go to Facebook or something and there's resiliency this, first responder this, which is great. The other great positive things are their peer support teams. The development of peer support teams has been tremendous. And the third one is, is counselors understanding our culture and how tremendously big that is, is truly amazing. And I think the important part of that is, is asking when, as a clinician, when you don't understand, tell me what it's like, help me understand instead of saying, oh, I know what stress is. You know, I spent uh, years as a crisis clinician, both in the hospital and on a mobile crisis team. And uh, so even a routine day was stressful, I'd go home exhausted. And it's not nearly at the level or the intensity of what uh, a firefighter experiences. And I was exhausted. Uh, on a day that was quiet because I was all jacked up, ready to, yep. to to go in. And you have to be in the right frame of mind to deal with crises. Um, it, it is. But you also have to know that you have to temper your emotions and and try to, to deal with those coping skills. And, and it can be difficult because so many of us, we become negative people. Mm-hmm. You know, we see these calls time after time. How can people treat each other like this? How do they treat themselves like this? How do they live like this? How did that accident happen? You know, and it's like, and it just boggles your mind. And yet you still have to stay within yourself to show that professionalism yeah. when you respond on calls. And so that's why laughter is such a tremendous coping skill for us in the fire and EMS world. We need that outlet and that release. That release. And so laughter is one of our, and, and people say that we have a very sick way of joking about things. Our humor is, is very dark. And, and yes, it, it probably is, but that allows us to release that stress and anxiety. And dealing with that hypervigilance that doesn't go away oh. when you leave the, the hypervigilance no. is part of the job. And it, you can't just turn that off when you go home. So I can see where that leads to 65% of suicides when you talk about relationships um, and things when you get home. That can create you know, significant issues. Well, society has actually enhanced our hypervision. I remember when I started back in the early 90s, if I went into a restaurant, oh, look at the you know smoke alarm panel they got. Oh, they got sprinklers and hotels and things. Nowadays, what are we doing? Well, if our community has a parade, well, what happens if a car comes down a sidewalk, starts running people over? Or what happens if I'm in a Walmart and someone starts shooting? How do I get people out? I'm at church and all of a sudden gunfire. I mean, all these things have created this. I'm, I'm always situ- I'm always situational awareness, right? If I'm driving down the expressway and someone zips by me at 90 miles an hour, I'm thinking, okay, when he hits someone and creates an accident, what's going to be my first role when I get on that scene? And you're in that role as a first responder. Normally, people would whip out their cameras and watch, you know, and video it. But us as first responders, we're going right into action. Even if you're retired, you're never going to lose that that vigilance of what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to be looking for? One of my friends is a retired colonel from the Army and uh, has seen a lot of action. 
and he says that and everyday stuff, he still struggles and he uses the scene from the Hurt Locker where the guy's in the grocery store and he can't figure out what cereal to buy. Because right. in the army, there's cereal. Right. And he got used to that. And he says, he'll walk into the grocery store with his wife and he'll be like, I got to walk away. You do this. I got to, because it's just not part of the build, the psyche that they've created over the years. It's not part of the it can, it can be, yeah. And it can be overwhelming. I, I'm, uh, you know, and I asked this question so many times, how many of us as first responders are now introverts instead of the extroverts that we used to be? And, uh, you know, so all, all these things, you know, the loud noises, large crowds, it, it it's very, it becomes a deterrent for us after all these years. You know, when you work in an environment where your own survival is not just dependent on situational factors uh, and one's own training, but by placing your trust in the skills of one's colleagues, you mentioned this, that the, the relationship with peers is absolutely paramount. Um, it seemed, this may seem like a silly question, but from those peer relationships, um, does a sense of healing also come from having those peer relationships where just being around somebody who understands and understands the difficulty? Well, like I mentioned earlier, it's it's one of the uh, most healing aspects that we can offer each other. You know, it, it really began to take fold in 2014 in the state of Illinois when two friends of mine, uh, Matt and Sarah, created the Illinois Peer Support Team. And what they did was they trained firefighters across the state of Illinois to be peer support team members. Now, I'm not against SISM, you know, critical incident stress management, yeah. but I, I, I do believe having peer support specifically trained members of your department that their, their two main roles are to listen and find resources for your, for your brothers and sisters. But like you said, they, they're on those calls and they understand the situations. And they know these brothers and sisters. They know what situations they might be going through at home. So it's always beneficial to talk to someone that you know you would know you would you know you know who's been through that that issue or going through that current problem that uh, every one of us struggles with. Whether it's relationship, financials, we all go through these things. And it's good to talk to someone that knows what we're doing. If, if I had a cardiac issue, do you think I'd go to an ankle doctor? No, you know, you go to someone who knows what you're going through. And uh, so peer support has been one of the, one of the top three biggest uh, advantages for us in this behavioral health arena. And, and I asked if it was a silly question because in my head it was, because I know that in, in substance disorders and mental health, peers have been active and peers trained peers are going to be a significant part of the, re the recovery system as we move forward for many reasons. Uh, but the idea of someone who says, you know, I get it. I understand. You can't take, uh, you can't put a price on how valuable that is just to have to not, to have that barrier already down. And then, like you said, there being a resource, it's they're removing barriers to whatever they're, they're, fellow firefighter needs to achieve or to get to. Um, Absolutely. And, and it's a big barrier. It, it truly is. So I can't let you go without giving you the opportunity to talk about your organization and the great work that you do. Um, if I was in an elevator with you and you were going to tell me uh, about your organization, what would you say? Our organization. You look to make sure that everything is in the <laughs> elevator that needs to be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
you know, we're a, we're a small little 501c3. Uh, we started in, actually in 2010 with our articles of formation and things. Uh, and that's when I started collecting data on fire and EMS suicides. And uh, the things that we've learned is incredible. And we, we travel across America and Canada. We have a <clears throat> excuse me, we have a long ways to go, though. And uh, <clears throat> we do, <clears throat> excuse me, oh, I, choked, I get choked up there, right? <laughs> and it's just, I don't know why I was put on this, this journey. I never lost anyone growing up, never lost a family member. I saw it on the job. But, you know, when you're put into a situation, you just go through with it. We have seven different workshops. We're coming out with our eighth one. And uh, they address all these different issues of families, how to create behavioral health programs. And, and so we just keep on learning from our brothers and sisters. And that's what makes us different than any other organization out there is not only that we collect the data and it's used in media. We were mentioned in Congress by a congressperson. Uh, and so plus 90% of all our workshops comes from our brothers and sisters or their families. We, uh, we hold an annual weekend retreat for family survivors, and uh, we have a scholarship program for children of fire and EMS uh, dispatcher suicides. And we also have a program. We work very closely with the American Ambulance Association. We help find counselors for EMS brothers and sisters. Uh, we help fund some counseling sessions as, as well. But I, I would tell you, though, Jeff, our biggest challenge is is that we are known as the suicide people because of what we do and the data and trying to find any type of funding. When you look at the negative, you got to look at the negative things too. Trying to get any funding for our organization is virtually impossible because when you look at, you talk about suicide and I've, I've talked to manufacturers to try to, you know, suppress with donations and funding to do our work. And they tell us, Jeff, we love what you do, but it's suicide. That's a negative connotation against our business. I had one manufacturer tell me, Jeff, there's not much of a return on investment for our organization. And, and I just, I stand there awestruck because I don't look for a return on investment. I've donated or I've dedicated 12 years of my life to hearing stories of our brothers and sisters, how they kill themselves, dynamite, setting themselves on fire, a flare gun. These things are awful. There's no return on investment. And my only hope is that I do enough that when I stand in front of the pearly gates, the good Lord says, hey, you did one good, better, positive thing than negative. Come on in. And so, but you know what? By the grace of God, we're still here. 12 years later, we are still here. And uh, it's, it truly is. And I couldn't do it without the support of my wife, Karen. She uh, volunteers about 30 hours a week. And uh, she she gets it done for us, huh? you know. So uh, that's just a little something about us. I hope that uh, people will check us out at ffbha.org and uh, join us on Facebook. You'll see I do uh, videos and all sorts of things on there. Well, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned your wife because as we talk about peer support and supports, we all need supports in what we do. Absolutely. Uh, and so we it's important to remember that, that no person is an island unto themselves, that, that right. what we do is in concert with other folks. Um, if there was one piece of advice that you would give to any clinician that may in a position to provide services to those in the fire service, what would it be? I would have to say, uh, 
it's a phrase I, I coined many years ago, and I named a workshop after it. I would say you have to do an internal size up. You would have to look at yourself within and say, do I really want to work with first responders? Because it can be very challenging and very difficult. And if you do, well, then educate yourself. Take some workshops, uh, you know, the National Volunteer Fire Council. If you want to be on the national directory, contact, uh, you know, us or the National Volunteer Fire Council, and uh, we'll send you the form to fill out. There's a two-hour training session, one of our training sessions you will watch. But you, you have to be honest with yourself and say, is this what I really want? Because, it, like I said, it can be difficult. And if you do, then what I recommend is make a two-minute video bio of yourself. Hi, my name is Jeff Dill. I'm uh, starting to work with first responders. I'm taking some classes. Uh, my strengths are trauma and marital relationships. And start sending them out to your local fire departments. Talk to your fire chiefs and say, I'm getting involved. I'd like to be a resource for your members. Here's a video bio for them to watch as well as their family members. A place to go outside of the employee assistant program. So that's uh, that's what I would recommend. That's great advice. I'm glad you said that because I wasn't even thinking that. Um, so that, that's why I'm talking to you to get the, <laughs> to get that information. Um, before we finish up, anything you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, I just I, I appreciate uh, you know what you're doing, Jeff, is to bring this awareness to not only the first responder world, the society, but to the counselors as well because we're going to need constantly new and more counselors so that the ones that we have are just not overrun and inundated, that there's a backup of three, four, five weeks for a first responder to get involved. So I appreciate uh, you know, you're recognizing uh, the value of what it takes for counselors, what it takes for society, what it takes for FBHA uh, to be on your show here to just give you a little message about who we are and, and what we do. And, uh, that means a lot to me, so I, I appreciate it, sir. Well, I really thank you for your time and for the willingness to talk to me about this. That's going to do it for this episode, with realization that our discussion was really just a raindrop in a river. But we do hope that this provides some insight and inspires you, as always, to learn more. Uh, as Jeff just said, educate. I encourage you to visit the website of the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance for more information, www ffbha.org. And I'd like to offer a special thanks to Jeff Dill for spending time with us to share his experience and expertise. We welcome any organization to join our podcast as a sponsor as we continue to address important topics that are often left undiscussed. We can be reached at info at ctcertboard.com for more information. We here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. Don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts from. We'll catch everybody next time. 